Well, we come to the end of this section, as I've told you before. Uh, this is a, uh, a long sentence, very much uh, the, the punctuation there, the, the paragraphs, it's all uh, aid by the translators to help us to break up this long sentence. But when it was written originally, it was one long sentence. It was one continuous flow of thought that came out of uh, the Apostle Paul's um, heart through the inspiration of the Spirit. And Paul has already expressed to us, um, and how to structure this is different, uh, difficult at times. Paul has already uh, expressed to us something of the work of the Father. We have already considered something of the work uh, of the Son in salvation. And um, now we get to this third part, if you divide it like that, which is uh, the work of the Spirit. But there's other ways to divide this long, continuous uh, sentence. One of them is to divide it by past, present, and future. Paul has already spoken about eternity past. When God, before the foundation of the world, elected us. And Paul has already uh, expressed uh, something of uh, temporal past. When Christ came into the world and through his blood, he accomplished our redemption. And now Paul goes on to speak about the present and even the future. That's another way. Uh, that's another line of flow through this section. There are different ways of dividing it. I've chosen uh, through this, uh, the last few weeks to divide it in that past, eternity past, um, historical past, uh, 2,000 years ago. And now we'll consider the, the present and the future of the believer. You remember the first illustration I gave you when we came to consider this section was that illustration of that uh, billionaire woman uh, in... Uh, in the United States, that she was the richest woman in the world, but yet she lived like a poor person. She, she didn't tap to the, the riches that belonged to her. And as we come to the end of this section, I want to consider, to emphasize that again to you. The purpose of this section is to remind us as believers of the riches that belong to us in Christ Jesus so that we wouldn't live like miserly people who, have, who are poor, but that we would be convinced of that, of that which the Lord says to the church in Revelation, that, but you are rich. You think yourself to be poor, but you are rich. So as we come to this section, we've considered predestination, our calling, we consider justification, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now we will we'll consider glorification, God's divine design. What is the end goal for us? And initially, and we really have to hasten because this is a, 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 a passage that is rich uh, in, uh, in content. Initially, uh, Paul tells us that in him, that is in Christ, Verse 11, uh, we obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the purpose of his will. Paul tells us of this great benefit that we have. We have obtained an inheritance. 
This is in reference to all that Paul has already spoken. Again, this is a long sentence. This is all connected. It's one flow. It's one train of thought. And Paul calls it an inheritance. In him we have forgiveness of sins. In him we have redemption. In him we have this vocation, this calling, this, the, to know the mystery of God's plan. In him also we have in, an inheritance. And I want to point a few things from this verse before we, we move on. I really want to focus on, the, on verse 13 and 14, but it would, I want to get through this. Let me note a few things. First of all, Paul says that in him also we. Which should lead us to question, what is the we? Who, no, not what, who, who is Paul referring to? It could be that Paul is referring to all of us. Uh, that could be that Paul is referring to uh, all Christians. But in the context here, I believe that Paul is actually referring to we Jewish believers. Because if you look at verse 13, uh, you see that Paul then contrasts the we who have obtained an inheritance, having uh, first trusted in Christ should be to the glory of his praise. And then, then Paul contrasts this addressing directly the Ephesians, saying, in him you also trusted. And I think there's this back and forth. In him uh, we obtained an inheritance, we who first trusted in Christ. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth. In him, well, we'll get there. But here Paul is contrasting Jewish believers with, um, with Gentiles. And this will become significant. Because secondly, look at the 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 verbal tense. I know it's, it's boring sometimes to look at verbal tenses and grammar and, and, uh, and uh, vocabulary and Greek and all of that. But look at the verb tense that Paul expresses here. Because we believe that God's inspired word is not just the, the big ideas, the, 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 the sentiment, or the flow of the passage, but God inspires even the smallest gram grammatical uh, aspects. Paul says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. It doesn't say that in him we will obtain an inheritance. He puts it in the past. We have already attained an inheritance. In him we have already received uh, an inheritance. And here it's important to note that in, as some of you who speak different uh, languages know, um, languages can be very different and can have different concepts. In Greek, there is this concept, Greek, the original language which this passage was written, there is this concept that is called the past-future. It's not really a verbal, uh, 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 a verbal tense, it's not, a, it's not really a, but it's a, it's a, a concept uh, in, the, in the way that they express themselves. If you were a Greek, speaking uh, person in the first century and you were so assured of something that is in the future and you wanted to convey that certainty of something that is coming in the future you would use the past tense you would say it as if it's already there if, if it's already happened that's how they expressed utter assurance if you wanted to say something that was certain that couldn't be changed you would express it in past tense and that's what we see here in him we also have obtained an inheritance. It's certain. It's, it's unchangeable. It's undeniable. But the question is, what is an inheritance? What is the inheritance? 
And we'll come to it once we get to verse 13 and 14. But let me just mention this. Paul is very uh, clear in his Old Testament theology. He knows his Old Testament history. To speak of inheritance as a Jew, it's not just a word that he uh, thought about and he, he places it there as, um, well, it, this is a nice concept. Let me, let me introduce it here. No, it's, it's full of meaning because an inheritance for the Jew, especially in connection with God's sovereign plan, speaks to, the, to people who know their Old Testament history of inheriting the land, of entering the land that flows with milk and honey. That was the inheritance. That was the, 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 the promise, a people that outnumbers the stars and the sands, the seed of Abraham. That's the, that's the language that is being used here. That's, that's why it's so significant that Paul is contrasting here the we Jewish believers and you uh, Gentile Christians, Gentile believers. It's that language, it's that concept that's being brought here. And again, the language of inheritance is throughout the Old Testament into the New. The Apostle Peter speaks of, of the abundant mercy that has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And that's the language that we've been seeing time and time again. It's that language of hope. It's that language of, of we've already received uh, something. It's already ours, but not yet fully. It's the already, not yet kind of tension that we find in Scripture so often. So that's the, the blessing. And we'll consider what the inheritance is uh, further in a in the third point that I have to make, but what is the foundation of the inheritance? What is, what is the source of that inheritance? Well, it's in Christ. It's in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the purpose of his will, or according to the counsel of his will. Paul assures the believers not only that it is in Christ, but again, he assures the believers in, in Ephesus that it is a, a plan A for God, that this was purposed by God in eternity past, by reminding them the, again that it is God's uh, design to do this. It, this is not some kind of plan B for God. This is not some kind of... of um, spur-of-the-moment decision that God made. It is according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that is a comfort for us believers, that in our lives, while we were still yet sinners, while we were uh, children of wrath, God delighted to choose a people for himself and has elect, uh, predestined us to salvation. It was not some kind of, of reckless uh, spur of the moment. God didn't think about the consequences. or the or, No, God willed it to happen. He purposed it to happen according to the counsel of his will. It was a carefully considered plan, carried out perfectly under the sovereign control of the one who is in control of everything. And it, it is... 
in very much connected with what Paul had already spoken in the, in the, the verses that we've considered a few weeks ago. That we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That we are, were predestined to adoptions as sons uh, by Christ Jesus. It, it emphasizes, but in this case, it emphasizes not only God's sovereignty in salvation, but it emphasizes for us also the, the purpose of our salvation. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is the purpose then? That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. It reminds us time and time again that all that God does, he does for his glory. He does according to the counsel of his will for his glory. That is the point that is being brought here. And the goal of this inheritance that is given to us is that, that we should praise his glory. Romans 11 is a very familiar passage uh, to us. And Paul basically, in, in this passage, uh, dives deep into, or after, in Romans 11, he dives deep into this uh, mystery of the unity between Jews and Gentiles and, and the mystery of God's will. And at the end of Romans 11, verse 33, Paul explodes. He can no longer contain himself, and he explodes in worship in a doxology where he says, oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Again, this language of counsel of his will. Oh, unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Who has told him to do this? Who has advised him in such a such matter? Who has first given to him that he, uh, and it shall be repaid to him? The answer is none. God did it out of his own accord, out of his own will. And then Paul finishes by saying, so for by him and through him and to him all, all things to whom be glory forever. Brother and sister, we are his. If we are bought by his blood, purchased by the blood of his son, we are his. We are for him, we are through him, and we are to him. And that releases us. That gives us uh, the, the most comforting truth. Because I know that if I am his, I know that if I'm saved for him, through him, and to him, I know precisely well what is the ultimate goal in my life. If you are for, through, and to him, if you are his, what is your purpose in life and in in death. What is your comfort in life and in death? What is your only purpose uh, in life? To live for his glory. There is no other motive in our lives than to live for his glory. There is no other right motive in our lives. Unfortunately, we confess that so often our motivations are wrong. But if we are acting as proper Christians, if we are uh, living life as God would have us to live, all things in our lives are for him, through him, and to him. For his praise, for the praise of his glory. But then we get to verse 13 and 14. And this is where I want to spend a little bit of time because not only we consider uh, 
the present, but now we move into the future. Not only we consider the work of Christ, the Son of God, but we now cons consider the work of the Spirit. In, in him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Again, now Paul, uh, Paul brings the Ephesians, the Gentiles, into this inheritance. And if this doesn't shock you, it's because you are not a Jew living in the first century. If this doesn't shock you, it's because you're not a, uh, uh, you don't have the expectations of, of first century Judaism. Because this should shock you. In fact, it shocked the Jews in the book of Acts. What was the shock uh, of Jewish believers in the book of Acts? Is that Gentiles were being saved. When Cornelius was saved and the Spirit rushed up, uh, came upon him, indwelled him. That was a shock. It is a shock for any Jew to, to understand that actually a Gentile, without becoming a Jew, is included in this inheritance, is brought into the fold of God. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is, should be the most shocking uh, statement yet by the Apostle Paul. This was the most shocking statement. It's impossible to overstate the shockingness of this. Let me just point out, although I agree somewhat with the translation here, if you look at verse 13, where it says, in whom you also trusted, um, if you're using a New King James, um, in other translations they'll do this, or translate it differently. Trusted there is in italics, it's those slightly bent uh, words. It means that this was not, is not in the original that this is a supplied word by the translators in order that the sentence makes sense. It literally just says, in him, in him you also, dot, 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 after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I, I don't dislike putting there the trusted because it connects it to the previous verse. That's why it's there. Um, Paul says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, hoped. Uh, but I suggest that perhaps it's even further. It's not just trusted, but it's more than trusted. In him you also have received this inheritance. In him also, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In him also we have that inheritance, Jewish Jews and uncircumcised, filthy Gentiles receive this inheritance. That's the shock. But let me mention this. The process through, uh, by which we receive this inheritance is clearly defined here. Let's say you were an unbeliever, as you were an unbeliever, and uh, how do you receive this inheritance? Paul is clear. You receive it by hearing the word of truth by trusting, by believing the word of truth. After you heard the word of truth, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that so wonderful? That it's through hearing and through believing that 
redemption comes, that the inheritance comes. It's through faith. Isn't that wonderful that the thing that caused fall, the fall was hearing and trusting when Eve and Adam, when Adam and Eve heard the serpent and trusted the serpent and obeyed the serpent. That's how sin entered the world. And now the remedy for it comes as well through hearing and believing. I don't think these things are coincidences. I think we're meant to see them. Just as Adam and Eve were tricked in, in, through hearing, it is through hearing that the fallenness is repaired. It, but let me define hearing here for us, because it's not just hearing, is it? It's not just hearing, it's hearing and believing. It's not just allowing the words to enter your ears or sounds to enter your ears. I speak Portuguese, as you know. If I started speaking Portuguese here, I guess that maybe my wife and my kids would understand me, and most of you wouldn't. Perhaps some of you might speak Sp Spanish as well. Some of you, but most of us wouldn't understand a word of what, what I'm saying, would you? You would be hearing me, but you wouldn't really be hearing me just hear some sounds that make no sense. You wouldn't be hearing me really. But that is, even that is not the whole picture. Because there is a hearing with understanding that is not really hearing or true hearing as well. What do I mean? I can say things and you understand them. But your heart is not moved to act on it. As a parent, I know a lot about this. I tell my kids... Uh, do this, and they, they hear me, they understand me, but yet they are not moved to act. And then I get upset and, and get grounded and all of that. But I know this is a permanent um, in a, or a feature that we all experience as parents. But that's the truth. Hearing and understanding, yes, but it's still not the hearing and believing that Scripture speaks of. It's more than just hearing it's more than just hearing and understanding. It's hearing and being filled, being propelled to act. It's trusting. It's, uh, it's hearing uh, of such a nature that, that we obey, that we are, com are, com we are compelled to act upon what we heard. The purpose of what Paul says here is to show us that hearing isn't is not all. It's hearing and believing. Some people are like Judas. They hear, they heard, time and time again, and they never believed. The only thing that filled them was hatred, or Satan, and Satan, in fact. I fear that some of us, we're so accustomed to hearing that we, that we stopped listening, that we stopped uh, uh, that we stopped trying to apply the word to our hearts. And this can be true of believers and unbelievers. When I moved uh, in, into Battersea uh, in 2017, I was living there in Sheepcott Lane. Some of you know where it is. It's right next to the, to the rail. Uh, it was right across from the, the, the rail line. And uh, 
the first couple of weeks, th two or three weeks, were horrible. Because at 6 o'clock in the morning, the trains would start going, and you wouldn't be able to sleep, especially on day offs. Uh, that was horrible, because pff, for two or three weeks, you, it, it, it was deafening. I heard it so much in the, that I, I, I couldn't sleep. But then something happened. All of a sudden, you stop noticing it. You heard the loud shouts, uh, the loud noise so much that at some point your, your brain just uh, um, disconnects that sound. It becomes, we become deaf to it, don't we? If you live next to an airport, if you live next to a busy road, at some point, all those noises just blend in. And sometimes with, with us, with the preaching of the word, it's the same thing. We hear, but we're not really listening. We hear, but we're not really understanding it. It's all just, but just a loud noise that comes through our ears and goes out the other way and never to be found again. It's a sound that was deafened, that was, became, we became too accustomed with. Brothers and sisters, honestly, let us not end up in that position. And if we have, let us train ourselves to listen and hear and understand and believe that what is happening in the preaching of God's word is for me and for you. Let us focus. You, you, you realize when, when Paul and, uh, and, and, and when scripture says that we can quench, grieve, or extinguish the spirit, is speaking about this. We can become so accustomed, so, so indifferent, so um, familiar that we stop listening, that we stop hearing. Let us pay attention. Let me just note as well that the gospel here is called the gospel, uh, uh, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that God calls it the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? It's, it's, it's as if it, God doesn't need to emphasize that what he says is true. And yet God emphasizes that it is true. Not because he needs to convince us, but because he wants to comfort us. He wants to encourage us. The whole word of God is true. The whole word of God, anything that he says is, uh, is true. And yet God, in the case of the gospel, he wants to emphasize to us as a witness, uh, it is the word of truth. God is faithful. God cannot lie. But he attributes this faithfulness more clearly, this truthfulness more clearly uh, to the word. It's sort of if this week I was talking when someone was expressing how they, they felt secured uh, by, by meeting a doctor uh, that kind of um, allowed that person or gave that person a, a sense of um, security. And that doctor prescribed, uh, prescribed that, that, this happens to all of us, the doctor prescribes a medication to us and he says this medication is good. The doctor is not saying that this medication is good in order to uh, convince us to sing the praises of the medication. The doctor is telling us that the medication is good because he wants to um, 
convince us, to persuade us to take it. Same thing with the gospel. God attaches this emphasis of truthfulness to the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that we may be persuaded to take it, that we may be persuaded to believe it, that we may be persuaded to tell others about it, to take it to others. And how wrong we are, brothers and sisters, how desperately wicked we are when we deny this. We wouldn't deny this in our words, would we? We wouldn't say that, oh no, uh, God is a liar because we're, we're Christians. We don't say those kind of things, but we deny it in our actions. We, we, don't, we don't deny it in what we say, but we deny it how we walk and how we behave, how, how we uh, act with it. We're not scared to deny it through our actions, are we? And we can deny God. And we can accuse him of being a liar by not believing in him. We can imply he is a liar by not only by saying it is false, but by our actions, by ignoring the grace he gives us through Christ. In fact, I would say that when we behave like miserly Christians, when we behave like those who, who are... Um, not tapping to the riches that God has given us, we're actually denying him. Because God wants us to live with that assurance. When God saves us, God wants us to live with the assurance of salvation. It's not for all, at all times. The assurance of salvation is something that only comes as we live in, not only in union, which we are always in, but as we live in communion, when our fellowship with God is close. But God wants us to experience it. God wants us to enjoy it and to rejoice in that, uh, in that knowledge, in that hope of glory that we have. We rejoice in the hope of glory because we are assured that glory is a certainty that God will keep us into glory. And that's what Paul, how Paul finishes here. And I'll, I'll, be, I'll try and be quick here. There's much I could say, but that's how Paul finishes here. He says that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee, the, the, the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Paul is not uh, mincing his words. He's... he's laying it all out before us. Look, if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. You've been sealed by the Spirit. The Spirit in you is the down payment, the guarantee, the, the earnest, uh, uh, the, the deposit that you pay before you buy a house to assure the bank or the creditor that you will pay it in full. That's what the Spirit is. You realize that? That's what Paul is saying here. You can have assurance in as much as you're in fellowship and in as much as the fruit of the Spirit is displayed in you. You can have that assurance because that is the proof that the Spirit is dwelling in you. You have faith. You believe. You have repentance. You, you, you are uh, growing in, into the image and likeness of Christ. That's the, that's the proof that the Spirit is in you. And that proof that the Spirit is in you is the guarantee 
It's the, the, the down payment, the deposit that tells you that you will receive the fullness in glory. He is the seal. Let's just look at some of this language quickly. What does it mean to be sealed? The word there um, is, is, is the mark's possession. It's a, it's a legal word. And we know this from, from medieval ages. Up until the medieval ages, this was the case. A seal was a stamp. You write a letter, you stamp it. If you're a king, it's a signet ring. You, you, you press the signet ring, and that letter now is imbued with the authority that belongs to the king. That letter is as good as the king's word. It demarks ownership. You stamp, it's not the, really the, the language that Paul is using here, but you, 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 you stamp your, your cattle. It's not the language Paul uses here, but, but, but you stamp your cattle in order to demarcate ownership. But, but really, here it demarks a security, a, a, a sign. Uh, and an indelible uh, mark that tells us that we are gods. The Apostle Paul says this. Let me read you from another passage that speaks in this language. 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. Paul says this. It's a familiar passage, at least the first verse to us. For all the promises of God, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. This, that is Christ. All the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. Comfort comes from this. To the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ uh, and has anointed us in God. Again, anointing uh, is uh, the pouring. Uh, and it's very much related to, spirit, to the spirit. He has also, Paul says in verse 22, sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The language of, of sealing might seem odd, but it is the mark. It is the, 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 the proof of ownership. If you if you've turned to, to 2 Corinthians, if you turn just a few verses there, um, you can actually read on in verse in chapter 3 and verse 3, where it says that you are, you, brother and sister, we Christians, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. What Paul is saying is, 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 is amazing. It's wonderful. He says we are living letters from God. We are living epistles from God, uh, epistles of, of the living God, written by the spirit, signed by the spirit, sealed by the spirit. God demarcates us he takes possession of us he makes us holy h h w h o l l y holy completely to himself and he makes us holy saints h o l y he makes us set apart for him that's what the spirit does and when does this happen when is it that we become uh, 
sealed with the Spirit, Paul says. It's when you've trusted. You believe, you trust at that moment, at the moment that faith is displayed, at the moment that Spirit quickens us, we are sealed by the Spirit. We are sealed by God's Spirit. So all of us, if we are Christ, we are sealed by the Spirit. That mark is in us. Now I need to say this. Because this passage is meant to assure, assure us of salvation. And although all of us are marked by the Spirit, uh, our experience of it differs. And it's right that it should differ. If we are living in sin, in unrepentant sin, even though we might be truly uh, gods, even though we are, we are truly saved, and, and if, at some point, certainly uh, God will work repentance into our hearts, that we have no reason, while we are in that sin, to have that assurance. Why? Because, or to experience that sealing. Although the mark is there, our experience of it, um, our feeling of it, I know feeling is that, that kind of word that, that makes us uh, squim a little bit in Reformed circles, but our, our sense of it, our experimental sense of, of that sealing should be absent. And that is right. Because we are not living in, through, and by, or to uh, God. So we, ha we should, at those moments, have reason to doubt. Until the point that we see the work of the Spirit again in our lives. At the point where we are walking in, new, in not, not only in union, uh, but in communion with God. Where we can be assured again that we are His. He does. He may and does take away the feeling uh, or the sense, the experimental sense of our sealing. That's what Paul, uh, for instance, in Ephesians 4, verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed to, for the day of re redemption. And Paul links this with the earnest again, and how much, how much time we have left, and I need to finish, but... But he links it to the earnest, to the guarantee, to the pledge of the Spirit. The question I had on my mind is, what is the inheritance? Uh, at the beginning of preparing this sermon, what is the inheritance? How do you define this inheritance? Well, to define this inheritance, that, just look at the down payment. That gives you a good sense. If you're buying a very expensive home, well, if you're in London, if you're buying any home here in London, you, you put up a, a very large down payment, any kind of studio flat or anything, you're putting up a, a down payment. And the down payment is in line with the fullness, right? If it's a, if it's a, a home, if you're buying a property, it's usually 10% of, of the, the full value. Uh, of the house you put as a down payment and that's that's been consistent throughout the ages the down payment the the earnest the should be in line with the fullness so let me ask you when the down payment when the guarantee when the earnest is the holy spirit what do you think is the fullness of the inheritance not just heaven because heaven in comparison to having the spirit is of a lower magnitude it wouldn't be a down payment 
the down payment of the Spirit tells us that the inheritance is God himself. We already have God dwelling, indwelling in us. And that tells us that the fullness that is to come is the fullness of God. Glory is not about us being in heaven with our arms singing and on the top of, of, of the clouds. Glory is about having that which was lost in the Garden of Eden. Fellowship, closeness, communion with God. Is to have that glory of God that was lost because of the fall. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We no longer have access to the presence of God. We no longer have a claim to be in the presence of God, to live for his glory. But now, having believed, having been purchased and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, we now receive the Spirit, which is a part of, a, a down payment of the fullness of what will be revealed, of what will be given to us uh, in the redemption of the purchased possession. It is the glory of God. That's why we rejoice. That's the pledge that God gives us. It is the earnest that God gives us is His Spirit. And not only does that guarantee us, guarantee us something about the future, that earnest that God gives, that guarantee that God gives us by giving us His Spirit to dwell in us, also tells us that with His Spirit will come the power and the ability and the wisdom needed to live life in this world. We sang it, didn't we? 179. He's the one that gives us his own dear presence to cheer and to guide, to give us strength for today and to give us a bright hope for tomorrow. Or as Augustus Toplady, the, the hymn writer says, Augustus Toplady was known as the, the, hymn, uh, the poet of assurance. No hymn writer was so uh, sweet and so rich in speaking of assurance of salvation he says yet I to the end shall endure yet I he says I to the end I shall endure as sure as certain as clearly as the earnest is given as clearly as the the guarantee uh, uh, of the spirit is given I to the end shall endure more happy in heaven yes but not more secure is the glorified spirit in heaven. That's what, that's what he says. I to the end shall endure. Because why? Because as sure as the guarantee of the spirit was given. I will endure because the spirit lives in me. And I'm a purchased possession. And God will see me through the end. And so much more I wanted to say about the spirit. But brothers and sisters. Just mark the, what, what, what God is saying here. That we belong to him. We are sealed by his spirit. And that he has given us the guarantee of our inheritance. Until the redemption in, of the purchased possession. No matter what devils and demons and the world might send us our way. We have the guarantee of the spirit. The guarantee of our inheritance. We already received the down payment. And God has promised and he's not a liar. He has promised that he will see us until the redemption of the person's possession to the praise of his glory. That's the point. I know when we hear the word promise, and I'll finish. I know when we hear the word promise, we, we all become cynical immediately. I, I become cynical. 
someone asked me something and I'm already failing on that. I didn't promise, but I'm already failing on my word. I said I was going to finish early and good time, but, but we become cynical. If someone says something, we become immediately cynical because we're so used to this world telling us things and failing at it. The government, the politicians, the, 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 the advertisements on TV, our friends, our family, our, our co-workers, our bosses, they all promise things. And from time to time, more often than we would like it to be, those promises fail. Those promises don't happen. We all have to admit it that we too fail in our promises. I'm a parent, and I know my kids so often turn to me and say, but God, Dad, you, you, you promised. And I have to go, yeah, I know I promised, but this happened or that happened. And I fell in my promises. We all fail. We live in a society that is filled up with broken promises. Everybody. But there is one. There is one who does not fail in his promises. There is one who does not lie. Whose promises are safe and secure. There is one who is above all things faithful and true and the promise that he makes here in Ephesians 1 11, uh, to to 14 this passage that we consider today he will fulfill them because all, because all his promises have their yes and there are men in Christ because it's not about uh, what we do or it's not about what we've done or what we do it's because of him he receives the glory by displaying his, uh, the riches of his grace. The Lord, Peter says, is not lacking or is not slacking with regards to his promises. He is not slacking. He knows the promises he's made. And up until now, not one of them has failed. The author of Hebrews says, let us hold fast to our confession or to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is what? Is faithful. Is truthful. Paul says to the Romans. And being fully convinced that what he had promised. He also was able to perform. There is one who promises and keeps it. And I make you a promise if you truly believe if you hear the word of Christ and you believe, I can make you this promise, not of my own self, but because the one who is faithful has promised that if you come to him, he will no way cast you out, that he will keep you, that he will see you through to the end. But there is also the warning, isn't there? John tells us that whoever does not believe, whoever does not believe, whoever hears and does not believe, makes God a liar. Why do you make a God a liar? Because the promise is clear. It's the thing you need. It's the thing you, 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 you desperately need. God gives it to you. And you don't accept it. You're making God to be a liar. You don't believe in him. You're making God to be a liar. So you ask, why is the punishment for, for unbelief so severe? You're calling the most faithful God. In the, uh, you're calling the faithful God, the true God, a liar. Of course this punishment is severe. You're calling him a liar. You're walking away, even this morning, if you're an unbeliever, you're walking away after having heard of all his blessings, of all his benefit, you're walking away completely unmoved and untouched. 
You heard, but you didn't understand. Or you heard, but you didn't hear. You, you, weren't, you weren't paying any attention. I don't know. But you are making him to be a liar. You're refusing him. You're rejecting him. You're calling him a liar. Whoever does not believe makes God a liar. Brothers and sisters, let's not us. The world, the unbelieving world will do this. But let us not do us this ourselves. Let us believe him. Let us live in ways, not just with our words, but let us live in a way that demonstrates, that lives out in accordance with the richness of the blessings that he has given us in Christ Jesus. Let us live for his praise, for the praise of his glory. Let us live with the hope, or rejoicing in the hope of glory. And again, when I say let us live with joy of salvation, let us live with that assurance, I'm not saying let us be happy, clappy, uh, evangelical Christians that they are always with this, with this almost cringy uh, happiness. That's not what it means to live with the joy of the Lord. We should be more happy, by the way. We should smile more. But, but we can be sorrowful yet rejoicing, as Paul says. Why is he able to say that? Because he, his joy is not connected with his circumstances. His circumstances now cause him to be sorrowful, but he's always rejoicing because what? Because he has the spirit, the guarantee, the down payment of the heaven that is to come. And that's what we should have. And that's what we sh how we should live. For his glory, lifting Christ up before our eyes, before everyone's eyes, and may the Lord help us. Because if we're left to ourselves, we'll fail. But with the Spirit of God, we'll be able to do so. May the Lord help